Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the Shortwave Radio and the Internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, France 24, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. German authorities made a high-profile raid on climate activists across the country. They are alleged to be members of Last Generation, a group involved in many instances of blocking traffic by gluing themselves to streets and airport runways. They are demanding that the climate crisis be taken seriously by the government. They are being charged with forming a criminal organization. While their ideals are widely supported in Germany, their tactics like traffic jams are increasingly unpopular. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. German authorities have raided the properties of uh, climate change activists across the country. Uh, prosecutors from the southern state of Bavaria ordered the searches, alleging the activists were forming or supporting a criminal organization. The suspects belong to the Last Generation Group, which has gained notoriety due to their increasingly controversial activities, including blocking traffic. Police search an address in Berlin. It's one of several properties across Germany that's been raided as part of an investigation targeting the climate protest group Last Generation. The reason for the searches is the accusation of membership or support of a criminal organization against seven of the accused. The starting point is a fundraising campaign that the accused organized and advertised for the last generation and then also collected a total of 1.4 million euros. The raids have shocked the group. They have scared us, but we cannot allow ourselves to be ruled by fear. The German government is knowingly driving us into climate hell. It is even accelerating. We have to continue our resistance. The climate group came to prominence with a hunger strike in Germany's capital in August 2021. A radical protest by six climate activists. For weeks, they camped out near Germany's parliament in Berlin, determined to make climate change top of the political agenda. Since then, last generation has grown, both in size and in the tactics it uses. Here, an activist glued herself to the runway at Berlin's airport, forcing officials to temporarily shut it down. Nothing has been off-limits. Last October, two protesters threw mashed potato at this Claude Monet painting, which was protected by glass in Potsdam's Barberini Museum. The red carpet has also been targeted. In February this year, 
activists glued themselves to the ground at Berlin's most famous film festival. But while these protests have forced people to stop, they've also caused huge anger as cities like Berlin are regularly brought to a standstill. Over the last year, numerous criminal charges have been filed against members of last generation. But activists say nothing will stop them from campaigning against the dangers that climate change brings. Well, earlier, our chief political correspondent, Nina Haase, explained why Last Generation is being regarded as a criminal organisation by some prosecutors. Well, the main accusation is that those suspects that I've mentioned have organised a fundraising campaign to finance what the authorities call, quote, further crimes for the last generation. They promoted the collection of money via their website. They managed to collect at least 1.4 million euros. And Bavarian authorities say that the money has largely been used to finance, quote, crimes. And in addition, there's also an accusation of attempting to sabotage critical infrastructure. Now, the jury is still out when it comes to the question, is the last generation a criminal organization or not? That is a pretty serious accusation here in Germany. You can get up to five years in prison or heavy fines. Groups that have the goal to considerably disrupt public security are considered criminal organizations here. And interestingly, when you look at court rulings here in Germany that dealt with the last generation, they're very much divided on that issue. While authorities in southern Germany, but also in Brandenburg, say that the fact that the groups um, have in the past blocked airports or threatened to sabotage critical infrastructure like oil refineries makes them a criminal organization. The prosecutor here in Berlin just last week said that while the members of the group do commit crimes, there can't be talk of them being a criminal organization, but merely what they did was create constant nuisance. Well, Nana Maria Gröning is a molecular biologist and member of Scientists' Rebellion. That's a separate international scientists' environmentalist group. She joins us from Berlin. Welcome to DW. Um, how do you feel about these, uh, these raids against last generation? Well, I'm angry because it is so disproportional. So it is so off scale and an unreasonable reaction to peacefully protesting people. Right. Um, the authorities uh, have said that they suspect them of, uh, of effectively being uh, organized uh, criminals. So if they don't arrest them, what should they do? They should uh, talk to them and, uh, well, do more serious climate action because if they would just do what they actually signed for already in the Paris Agreement or what's in the Constitution, so they are actually obliged to protect our lives and our futures. If they would just do their job, then the protests would stop immediately. And it's a fact that governments of the Global North, including the German one, are not nearly doing enough to protect us from climate breakdown, which is escalating day by day. Anna Maria Gröning, thank you. That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Next, France 24. First, a series of press reviews on French military spending, the conflict between President Lula da Silva and Zelensky, and a cold war between the U.S. and China, over undersea internet cables. As the French government launches a national consultation on its climate change roadmap, 
predictions of a 4 degrees Celsius temperature increase by 2100 is being talked about way beyond the 1.5 degree goal from the Paris climate talks. Also, why is Europe already heating up more than other regions of the world? There was a controversial attack on the Russian city Belgorod claimed by insurgent groups of Russian volunteers in Ukraine. The Ukraine and U.S. governments deny involvement in the attack, but security experts think otherwise. France 24. Solange, you're going to be starting off with the French press and its discussion about the future of the French military. Yeah, what will war look like in 2030 and what kind of military force will France need in the coming decade? Well, l'humanité is asking these, Lacroix is asking these questions today uh, uh, as uh, the French parliament is uh, beginning to examine the government's defense plans and its military spending. The military package that's proposed allots, as l'humanité tells us, some 413 billion euros over the next seven years, which for l'humanité uh, is a major hike uh, that is in line, it says, with other European nations, with other major European nations. Luma writes in its editorial that it is an upward trend that began before the war in Ukraine and the war has only accelerated this trend towards military spending. As Libération notes, uh, this the bill will first and foremost benefit France's arms industry. The paper also reminds us that France is the world's number two when it comes to arms exports, with some 12 billion euros in arms sold in 2021. As for France's own defenses and its desire to be seen as a major player in the global uh, security uh, fabric, uh, L'Opinion laments that there is nothing but money in this plan, that no major change in military tactics or vision, change in vision accompanies it. On the menu, as we see in CAC's drawing, uh, there are small quantities of weapons, but pas d'audace or nothing audacious about it. At the G7 summit, Volodymyr Zelensky emerged with some newfound support, but it's a missed meeting that's getting a lot of press attention today. Yeah, as we see in the Brazilian paper followed to Sao Paulo, the fact that Zelensky and Lula did not meet is spilling ink. The Brazilian paper points uh, points blame at Zelensky, saying that Lula, Lula proposed three different times for the meeting and never showed. Asked about this, Zelensky uh, said scheduling issues uh, were at fault, and, it, and he smirked that Lula must have been disappointed, at which point, as Ol Golobo tells us, Lula, the Brazilian president said that he he wasn't disappointed, but he was upset, uh, adding that Zelensky is a grown man and he knows what he's doing, end quote. Now, in regard to the backstory of this animosity, foreign policy uh, tell, reminds us that last month Lula uh, said that Ukraine should give up Crimea and that Washington was encouraging the war. For FP, these stances have had the effect of sidelining Brazil on foreign policy uh, issues. But there is also a bigger picture at work, as Vox tells us. Uh, of Ukraine's difficulty of wooing the global south, namely India and Brazil, but also the Middle East. Uh, it says that uh, these nations are wary of joining, joining the West's democ democratic rhetoric. So Zelensky, they, Vox says, is trying to change his narrative of, quote, casting off the yoke of an imperialist oppressor. But the global south so far has been wary of turning away uh, from trade with Russia. 
to Nigeria, which has inaugurated the African continent's biggest oil refinery. That's right. It is uh, on the front page of the Daily Trust today, uh, the Dangote refinery, a game changer. That's the words of the Niger outgoing Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari. Um, the website, The Conversation, explains that this refinery is Africa's largest refinery, producing 650 thousand barrels a day. It's also um, uh, really uh, being hailed as sort of an African project for African people um, and hope to hoping it will address Nigeria's uh, energetic needs in, in, in the sense that it currently has to import 80 percent of refined petroleum products. All right. Well, Dipti, either way, no matter who it is, the next president will no doubt continue dealing with U.S.-Chinese diplomatic relations, which are at an all-time low foreign policy today looking at how underwater cables are becoming the new Cold War. Yeah, it's an it's a article well worth reading if you have the time. It's um, basically a, about subsea cables that travel through risky waters to connect pretty much every country in the world to internet communication. So you can imagine if you don't have access to these subsea cables and you are pretty much cut off from the rest of the world. Now, uh, the foreign, po foreign policy explains that more cables will be needed in the future, um, but new pipelines are stalling because of... Uh, politics because of diplomacy. For instance, China has been slow to approve new cables in the South China Sea. The U.S., meanwhile, is worried about China spying through the cables, uh, so much so that it has denied permission for four subsea cables traveling between uh, the U.S. and Hong Kong. The cables are, are really a peace project. They uh, arrived at the end of the Cold War. They're not fashioned to be constantly patrolled, but deteriorating relations between notably the U.S. and China mean they've become a sort of diplomatic uh, weapon, if you like. It's well worth a read in Foreign Policy today. Now, the French government is launching a national consultation on its climate change roadmap today. The initiative comes amid warnings that the country must prepare for temperatures of four degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels at the end of this century. According to France's Minister for Ecological Transition, the most optimistic scenario would be by the year 2100, a two-degree increase for metropolitan France, but they say a four-degree increase is actually more likely. To tell us a bit more, Valérie de Camp, our environment editor, is with me. And Valérie, just tell us, first of all, about this consultation that's kicking off today. Right. So essentially what the government is saying is that we cannot rule out the possibility that the country will hit the four degrees uh, warming uh, mark. And that is pretty significant because that is saying, hey, we're actually preparing for a pretty grim scenario, considering that under the Paris Agreement, the world should aim to cap global temperatures at two degrees Celsius of warming. So the point of this public consultation, as you mentioned, will be to try and define a, a climate change roadmap for adaptation. So it's not only about how we uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also how do we adapt to the reality, to the real-life consequences of climate change. So it will last until the end of summer. It's only just beginning. And it will serve as the basis for a climate change adaptation plan that the, the government will release later uh, by the end of the year. So they're looking at different scenarios, two degrees of warming, four degrees of warming, the, the more uh, pessimistic 
optimistic scenario, bearing in mind that the world is already on track for uh, a temperature rise of between 2.4 and 2.8 degrees of warming. We also know that 2022 was the warmest year on record for France. So let's face it, four degrees of warming, that's not just a far-fetched scenario. That is a real possibility. Uh, it doesn't mean that France will potentially hit that mark of four degrees, but the country needs to prepare for that possibility. So they're going to launch a nationwide plan for more recurrent droughts. Also, how do we make sure that farmers can adapt to that new reality, renovate schools, homes, just thinking about how French people 20 years from now will go on about their daily lives if we're not able to rein in emissions in time. And Valerie, one thing we know at the moment is that Europe is warming faster than other parts of the world. Spell out what the implications of that are, particularly here in France. So globally, I mean, global temperatures have increased by 1.2 degrees. But as you say, Europe is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. And so 1.2 degrees globally, that already has translated into 1.7 degrees of warming here in France. So half a degree, uh, an additional half a degree than the rest of the world. And I want to show you this graph here that I think is really quite interesting because you see that if temperatures rise by 1.5 degrees, that's two degrees here in France, two degrees by the middle of the century, that's going to mean 2.7 degrees of warming in France, and then three degrees of warming by the end of the century, that's the four degrees uh, that France is preparing for. So again, very much real climate warming projections. And so the reason why... Europe is warming faster than the rest of the world is pretty simple. It's because the, the percentage of land mass is a lot higher in Europe. Um, and so it warms a lot faster than the sea. And so th- that is one of the explanations, um, which means, and that is why scientists are saying that Europe has become a heat wave hotspot. And the consequences of that are very much real here in France. And as part of this consultation, for example, in that scenario that uh, the government is working on, there could be four times as many droughts in the future, uh, tropical storms could increase by 50%, and that could have real consequences for the economy. Uh, France's GDP could drop by 6 or 13%. So all of that, again, not a far-fetched scenario, but things that uh, France needs to be preparing for. Valérie Decamp, thank you very much indeed for coming in to tell us a little bit about um, that plan. Thank you very thank much. You. A car in Belgorod damaged after a drone fell on it. One of dozens from the Ukrainian side of the border that Russia says it shot down on Tuesday night. It follows an audacious incursion into Russian territory from Ukraine. Local authorities say the assailants killed one civilian after opening fire on a car. The Kremlin claimed Russian forces had killed what it called 70 armed Ukrainian nationalists. But the two units who claimed responsibility for the attack are made up of Russian insurgents. One of them, the Freedom of Russia Legion, includes renegade Russian military personnel, and the other is the far-right Russian Volunteer Corps, founded by Denis Nikitin, a neo-Nazi who has lived in Germany. Kiev said it did not have any involvement in the attack, but security experts believe Ukrainian authorities have links to the insurgent groups. We have to realise that these are not independent forces. Although the claim is, you know, Kiev is saying this is nothing to do with us, these are just Russian volunteers, they are controlled by Ukrainian military intelligence. Images from Russian state TV showed US-made Humvees purportedly destroyed during the incursion. 
The United States, for its part, was evasive on questions about American military hardware being involved. I, the tax, I will say that we're skeptical at this time of the veracity of these reports. Uh, as a more general principle, as we've said, and I believe I said yesterday, we do not uh, encourage or enable strikes uh, inside of Russia, and we've made that clear. Um, uh, but as we've also said, it is up to Ukraine to decide how to conduct this war. There have been previous incursions into Russian territories by drones during the 15-month war, but never on such a scale. It opens up the possibility of Moscow having to fight on a second front ahead of Ukraine's long-expected counteroffensive. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English and most major podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162. Willits, California, 95490. Please, help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet like listeners in Albion and Annapolis, California did this week. Many, many thanks, both repeat customers. We will conclude with NHK Japan. The G8 summit in Hiroshima concluded with the Japanese Prime Minister hailing it as a success. Unified support for Ukraine and new sanctions against Russia. The Russian Foreign Minister called the visit by Zelensky a propaganda show. Officials in Hiroshima called for an end to nuclear weapons. South Korean experts examined the facilities to dump diluted nuclear waste from the devastated Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean this summer. Meanwhile, the Japanese nuclear regulator wants to see a plan for dealing with recently discovered damage inside the Fukushima reactors. NHK Japan. Japan's Prime Minister is hailing this year's G7 summit as a success. Chair Kishida Fumio says leaders made clear their determination to protect international order. And with President Volodymyr Zelensky's dramatic appearance, heralded their solidarity with Ukraine. During the three-day meeting in Hiroshima, G7 leaders announced new sanctions and export controls against Russia. They promised millions in new military aid for Ukraine including the training of pilots on F-16 fighter jets. They vowed to aim for a world without nuclear weapons and to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And they deepened ties with emerging nations invited to the summit, including India, which has close ties with Russia. There was strong reaction from Russia's foreign ministry. It says G7 leaders' statements were brimming with anti-Russian and anti-Chinese language. Russia says bringing Zelensky to the summit turned the meeting into a propaganda show. China's foreign ministry says it has summoned the Japanese ambassador over references to Beijing-related comments at the summit. It says Japan colluded with other countries in smearing and attacking China and grossly interfered in its internal affairs. Officials in the city of Hiroshima have aired out a registry that contains the names of the 1945 atomic bombing victims. The work is carried out annually to protect the registry from being damaged by humidity.
Employees observed a moment of silence at Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park on Wednesday at 8.15 a.m., the exact time the atomic bomb was dropped 78 years ago on August 6th. They took the volumes out from a stone chest under the cenotaph, then laid them onto a white cloth, turning each page to check for damage and dry it out. The registry holds the names of the 333,907 people who were exposed to the bomb along with the dates of their deaths. It's updated every year. I hope many people will realize the horrors of nuclear weapons through the sheer number of volumes of this registry and the long list of people who have died as a result. World leaders visited the park during the G7 Hiroshima summit. They laid flowers at the cenotaph and paid tribute to the victims. South Korean experts have wrapped up their visit to the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. They examined the handling of the plant's treated water ahead of the plan to release it into the ocean. It will be diluted to levels that meet safety standards. The experts visited the plant on Tuesday and Wednesday. They looked at the construction of the facilities to be used for the water release. South Korea currently bans fisheries products from Fukushima and seven other Japanese prefectures due to safety concerns. Tokyo Electric Power Company officials sincerely guided us, answered our questions, and promised to consider providing us with data we requested. I believe our visit this time has helped us make significant progress in our assessment. Rain and groundwater have been seeping into damaged reactor buildings, mixing with water used to cool molten nuclear fuel. That water is treated to remove most of the radioactive materials in it, but the filtered water still contains tritium. TEPCO will be diluting it with seawater to ensure that the concentrations of radioactive materials will be far below regulatory standards for safety. The plan is to start releasing the water in the summer. The International Atomic Energy Agency is set to issue a safety assessment of the plan by June. Japanese officials say they will continue to provide scientific explanations based on objective assessments to gain international understanding about the release. While TEPCO is facing another challenge, Japan's nuclear regulator is urging the company to come up with a plan to mitigate the risks of major damage to one of the reactors. Reactor number one and two others at the plant melted down following the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. In late March of this year, TEPCO sent an underwater robot into the reactor's containment vessel, which is submerged in water to cool molten fuel. It found that a concrete structure supporting the pressure vessel, called a pedestal, is damaged almost all the way around and more than initially thought. TEPCO says even if the pedestal becomes unable to support the pressure vessel, other surrounding structures would prevent it from entirely collapsing. But the Nuclear Regulation Authority decided on Wednesday to urge the firm to study possible risks in detail and draw up necessary measures by July to prevent radioactive materials from leaking out. TEPCO also says it will study whether the reactor's quake resistance has been undermined. 
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 9.865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also podcast at most sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 27 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I'm staying at a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.